0: Hello. This is the Plant Book Club. Hello. My name is Ellen Earhart. I'm here with the Plant Book Club. That is Yoram, Melissa, Judith, and Tegan.
1: Hello. Hi. No. <laughs> <Hey>. Hello.
2: <laughs> <laughs>
0: Today we are reading *Rambunctious Garden: Saving Nature in a post wild War- World* by Emma Morris. And so, in this book, she kind of goes over how we think about conservation and some of the issues with those ideas, like the kind of—I don't know—preference for your purity and the idea that we can restore nature into something that it was before, whatever that means. And she suggests some new ways of reframing, rewilding, and conservation goals in a way to do as much good as possible and make the world a better place. So
1: would y'all say that's right? (laughs) Yeah. yeah i think the first comment is that like it's called rambang- rambunctious garden but it's not specifically about plants and gardening it's definitely much broader than that it's about sort of saving all kinds of biodiversity um there's lots of plant examples but woven in with animal examples and you know overall ecosystem examples and yeah a bit of everything really
3: and the thing that uh, to me is important in the title already is this idea of the post wild world. And I looked a little bit about her other works that she's doing. Um, Emma Maris is also doing like TED talks and uh, has written like opinion pieces and for for journals and and magazines and stuff. And the idea of post wild, I think, is really the key to this book here. The the idea that there really isn't anymore a thing that is wild or our understanding of what we think what wild is doesn't really fit with what we find out there in the world and then from then on what do we make of this idea what do we make of like how do we preserve nature how do we deal with ecosystems if they are not really wild anymore in the sense that they are untouched and that's something that i found really interesting in the book
4: i thought there were many moments when i read it it's like oh my gosh i've never thought about this i've never like seen it under this aspect like uh, the question of like you say pristine nature is there pristine nature and how long humans have actually affected nature mm-hmm. <laughs> should human be part of nature or not there were so many so many things to think about while reading the book it was really great i really liked it
2: yeah i found the same thing it challenged some of the ways i thought about nature and really like the idea of what is the baseline? Like what is the baseline that conservationists are struggling to get pristine nature back to? And does that even exist? And is it even possible now where we have like climate change that affects every aspect of every part of the earth? And how can we disentangle those things or if we even can? So I really enjoyed reading and I also found it to be very optimistic, like even though some of the things we're saying sound a bit doom and gloom, it was very hopeful, almost like presenting some kind of practical or ideological ways forward rather than just saying how humans have destroyed the world and we can't do anything (laughs) about Mm -hmm. it.
0: Yeah, I've been thinking about this book a lot actually as I made my community garden, um, as I've been choosing plants for the community garden. I am head of the plant committee at my community garden, and I've been really frustrated because my garden is very dark and dry and there's a bunch of lead in the soil, so we can't plant anything you need to you can eat. Um, and so I planted some stuff via seed that all died. And then, uh, I planted, I was like, okay, I'm going to go in the opposite direction. Instead of native seeds, I'm going to plant begonias and they're thriving, but I don't like the way they look anymore. They look like everything else (laughs) on the block. (laughs) And so I was discouraged. And so I went to the Brooklyn Botanical Garden. Um, I live in Brooklyn and they had this whole beautiful like shade garden thing and I was really interested because I expected the botanical garden to have just New York plants, you know, like native plants. And um, they had a whole mix of plants across the, from across the United States and across the world that they specifically chose to do well in a Brooklyn shade garden that was also quite dry. And so I was like, this is perfect. So I copied um, some of their ideas. And so that's going in the ground now. So I don't know, I was thinking about her and I was thinking like I was trying to choose in the beginning just native plants that I know are local to here and I don't think that was the right idea and I don't think it was the right idea to plant like the hybrid begonias everyone has also. So somewhere in between.
1: (laughs) Yeah, the compromise is kind of an overall idea of the book and like Melissa just said, it's quite an optimistic book but one thing I really like about this is it manages to be optimistic without being like overly simple or I think it's like realistic and optimistic at the same time. And often I think popular science books, especially, they really fail to get the complexity and get the nuance and they go like too far one way and sort of say it's all going to be all right or oh, it's all awful. But this, I think, does a really nice job. And it's, it's really that it's discussing the balance. And yeah, I think I want to come back to it, but like the last chapter in particular, sort of discussing all the different problems that we have with different conservation approaches. Um, And it doesn't actually rest on any of them. It doesn't decide for one or the other. It just sort of says, hey, here's why this has pros and here's the cons. And I really love that approach. And you sort of see that throughout the whole book, this compromise idea. I totally agree with that, that she is
4: really successful in keeping a neutral mind and being open minded to many different ideas. And what I also liked is that she went and experienced all these different ecosystems and met scientists in all kind of different places. Uh, what now I spontaneously remember is Hawaii and the Netherlands, but there were many more than this. And uh, she, well, she describes them of how she experiences them as a person, but then also how the Uh, people that work with this ecosystem reason in such different ways and it becomes really clear that there is not one answer of scientists to this problem, which is a great way for a popular science book that also scientists don't have all the answers. And there's much to be discovered in order to know what way we should actually go. But we don't have the time to wait for results, which brings us into this like, oh my gosh, should we do something or should we wait? <laughs> should we do research or should we just do what feels right?
3: <laughs> yeah, yeah, I uh, I really agree. And uh, I think also the structure of the book reflects that that she's like thinking about how to present this how to approach this and and show the different different aspects to it um, but also sort of ease you into some concepts that are really sort of far away from the traditional idea of conservation so it starts with really looking at sort of traditional conservation biology uh, with um, going I think to Hawaii and looking at how they deal with invasive plants there and your the whole idea of invasiveness um, and then uh, moves further to like the traditional like the, the national parks in the, Yellowstone, um, in the Yellowstone area and then goes to Poland and through that through like multiple steps goes then in the end to like novel ecosystems and designer ecosystems so something that we would deem quite artificial and if we if you would lead with that you would maybe scare some people away but through the way she structures the book it really leads to that idea that maybe just conserving something pristine isn't possible anymore so what else can we do and what things that we can do is just look at just what do you did Ellen. there right like build a new ecosystem make one that is adapted to the local challenges and not one that just historically has been there and uh, I really like that she led the story in this direction that, that the book wasn't like while the chapters are somewhat independent they still build on one another to come to the final conclusion and I think in some of the other like nonfiction books that we've seen they sometimes could be a little bit more disjointed. They had like one idea for one chapter and a completely different idea for the next chapter and so on. Um, And this book really like builds on, on each other and I really enjoyed reading that.
1: It was well structured, but also very well written. Like her turn of phrase throughout is, is really beautiful. There wasn't too many of these awkward things where you're like, oh, I wish she hadn't said that because that makes me a little, we've discussed this with some of the other books where the approach is a bit like old white male, or there's just some things where there wasn't too many of that throughout. Like, and just, it's, it's lovely writing and it was actually really a pleasure to read the book, honestly.
0: Yeah, I first was introduced to her through her magazine writing for, I think, Wired and um, like Nagio and New York Times. And she, her magazine writing is also incredible, as you can probably guess from this book. But I wanted to quote this sentence that I thought was a really nice summary. In the very end, she says, in a nutshell, give up romantic notions of a stable Eden. Be honest about goals and costs. Keep land from mindless development and try just about everything.
1: <laughs> what do we want to talk about next? Sorry, I am putting it at a vacuum.
3: The problem is that I I, I enjoy it so much that I can't really nitpick a lot. I, I feel like I just want to paraphrase everything in there.
1: I have two nits to pick.
3: Yeah. <laughs> Shall I pick my nits?
1: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I think that's a great way of leading in Yoram. Yoram has no nits to pick. I have some nits to pick. So there was... there was I thought she was a little bit too in favor of the invasive species. And I don't think she was in favor. But I am so cautious about invasive species. Um, I come from Australia. So that might be a clue. Like we are very like pristine island. And there was one... One of the few phrases in there where I really felt like my my back hairs go off and be like, no, that's not correct, was when she said that overall invasive species have not been responsible for extinction of other species unless you include humans among those. Like there was actually a footnote and I looked at the footnote and said, well, no, if you think humans are invasive species, well then yes, you can say we invade and then we, we kill things. But she said on continents, that's not usually the case. Um, And I was like, well, what about Australia? Does it count as an island or a continent? Because there we've had huge problems with rabbits and foxes and like all of our little tiny small marsupial animals going. So there was like that one thing where I was like, Ooh, and I think the invasive species, it was very well-balanced, but I think there was this idea of that came up like two or three chapters later where somebody said, you know, if you look at invasive species, you need to really be looking at are they damaging the native populations? And I think that could have come in a little bit harder for me in the invasive species chapter because it wasn't really integrated into that bit. It was a little bit later on. And that made me a little bit tense because the idea of losing – like species forever because you know cats are roaming around freaks me the hell out <laughs> so the smallest of nits and i think she did do a good job generally balancing it but that was one thing where i was like ooh ooh ooh
0: yeah it's interesting you say losing species forever because i feel like that's kind of a like, it really gives you, like, a visceral response in your chest when you think about that. And I think that that's kind of what she was trying to address emotionally. Like, how do we deal with this grief in addition to trying to be realistic?
1: And I was thinking about that. So I think that's one of the things she's discussing. So, like, I did, as a bachelor, I did conservation biology. So I think I've got that idea of, like, we must conserve. So I I can understand that that's part of the point of her book, is to go against that traditional training of cons bio as, like, save everything like you know and then also the Australia thing I think that was a very you know we had so many invasive species that really damaged our continent we call it a continent others call it an island so that to me was one of those things that like really hit two parts of my my being, and I, I know I know this is part of the debate. So I work now in climate change and I know there's so much discussion about whether species that are having to expand their range, mainly like polewards, in response to climate change, if they should be considered invasive if they move to new areas. And she talked about that a little bit in the context of climate change, but more so in the context of sort of adaptive movements and so like people moving plants and animals to help them survive climate change. Um, so I know that is a discussion in the field. Like, academics are saying, is it or is it not invasion? If a species moves where it sh- wasn't previous to climate change, but by itself, where do you draw the line? But it it, it is something that's a little bit iffy. <laughs> like, And again, I think she deals really nicely with the great lines, but, like, ooh. <laughs> I'm so scared of those other, like, these other environments those species are moving into. The, the point is, like she did bring it up a little bit again with the mountaintop idea of like there's there runs out of space and you don't know how the disruption happens and i think you know when these species move we can often see the disruption or lack of disruption at the macro level but i always just have the feeling we know so little about the micro level about and other services and functions that are getting lost and we often don't realize them until that's quite late so like this is kind of one of those those change things that's that's happening So anyway, I guess, how did, how did the rest of you feel about that? It did, I I first thought like, oh, that is, uh, yeah, I was bothered by
4: this, but the more she gets into detail about this and the more she discusses with different people about this, like how difficult it is to get these invasive species in check, to hold them in check. And you need to have just one, or two, left that you haven't killed off, and then they will all regrow. So in a way that it seems to be pretty impossible when you have already invasive species in a place to, to get rid of them, that you may as well use their ecosystem services as good as you can to maintain what is there because it's not even sure that you can go back in time. If you if you consider like soil microflora. These may be having completely different microflora and having done different things to the soil as compared to the native plants that they were before. So if you rip them all out and you try to grow them again, it doesn't always work. And as she also says, some of these native plants grow very slowly. So it's very difficult to establish them and they are, they would need to establish in a different climate than when they were out-competed by these invasive plants. So I, I could see the point that rather than fighting against uh, like, like like the Goliath idea. Use what you have and try to make the best of it. But that, of course, uh, like, simplifies a, the idea.
1: It simplifies it and it's a slippery slope. So I think like, yeah, mm-hmm. I think I, I can see her point of like, you can't just say we must remove everything. There was a very nice example about um, some ecosystem where there were some trees, some non-native trees growing and they were creating shade, which was allowing um, new native like young saplings to grow. And otherwise they, they wouldn't be able to grow sort of if they had full sunlight, it would overwhelm them. And the idea is that you shouldn't remove the the bigger trees because the, that will actually prevent the natives from growing but you should have sort of longer term plans that when the natives do get bigger then we start thinking about removing those so I think it's kind of this careful planning as opposed to just pointing at something and saying it's invasive it's wrong. <laughs> Move out. There, w- there was also one mention in the book where she compared invasive species to like immigrants going to another country. And I was like, "Oi, it's <laughs> a bit rude." <laughs> like, excuse me. <laughs> Something about like when resources are good, like immigrants do well. And I was like, "Fine, <laughs> <That's> fine."
3: <laughs> yeah. Um, what I liked about the whole idea of, of the invasiveness, uh, the way she presented it in the book, was that she. Uh, made the case for looking at functions of organisms within an ecosystem instead of looking at identity of um, uh, species within an ecosystem. So instead of saying, historically, this bird has been here, so the bird has to stay here, but then it got extinct or drove into extinction. Instead, if you need the function of, a, for example, seed dispersing bird, maybe there's other birds that like migrated there already that you can sort of embrace or that you can even bring in there which goes more into the de- designer ecosystems but filling the function of a species that might be under threat or that's that has been lost and i also really like that idea i mean we've seen in the past that if you do that not careful enough it can go very wrong also like again australia there have been like many like a cascade of species being introduced to the country where they're like oh we have a problem we bring in another oh, species that's biological control yeah and then they get uh, the the that species goes out of hand and they bring in the next species and um so it like it has to be done in a very careful way and maybe places like like island continents like australia are special cases but i think the, the book is very often written about the idea like or with the north america in in focus and there i think the rules are a little bit different because it's not uh landlocked or like there's no like it's not completely surrounded by the sea um so yeah i really enjoyed that and All of that led to these, like, ethical questions, these, like, science ethical questions. I think something we touched before also, like, it's the question, like, do we act now or do we do more research? What do we do in face of the climate crisis? And, uh, like, is it ethical to move species to a new habitat because we think they might do better there? Is it ethical... To have certain ways of conserving areas, like either being like leaving it to themselves or actively managing it. And I really like that the, the book like opened all of these questions, gave a lot of arguments in favor and against many of these questions, but didn't come to a f- like strong conclusion that that sort of dictates you what to think, but rather shows you like the complexity of it, and but helps you to navigate that complexity as well. It's not it's not just showing you like a very crazy world and say like, go <laughs> g- good luck now. You've seen how how hard <laughs> everything is. Make up your mind. But rather like, look, there's so many arguments. Like pick the ones that fit for yeah, the situation no right that you're discussing. Answer.
1: I think that was one of the other things I would have liked to see a little bit more of and that was again this is from my bias I think so she mentioned it a little bit in the terms of the forestry conversations there's a discussion about how because um plants that are used for forestry they have like high value they just have an economic value and that means people sort of are more likely to be actively thinking about how they will survive in the next 20, 50 years. And also because um, trees are very slow growing, you need to think about the change that is happening now, but it will be definitely there in, t- in 2050, 100 years time. So talking about preparing what species you grow based on what the climate will be in the next 50 or 100 years. And I would have liked to see that argument developed a little bit more in the book. I think um, that's kind of one of the things that comes up. like So she talks about baselines, And one of the other sides of the baseline story from the current climate change point of view is the fact that no matter what the baseline is, does that really matter? Because the world is going to change so much in the next 50 years. And conservation scientists are now discussing whether instead of looking forward, we should be projecting 50 years in the future and then looking backwards, basically being like we now know there's gonna be like, instead of being like, here's this one species, let's try and like hold on to it for the next 50 years through this change, like project to where the change will be and start preparing for that and moving things around because the change is just happening at such a fast rate now. And I think I would have liked to see a little bit more about how the arguments work in the rapidly changing world. But I think again, that is a bit my bias. I think as we're talking about
2: this, I'm remembering some thoughts I had as I read the book, and it almost came to me as like, how much should we intervene? Like the the earth is this ecosystem that responds and adapts on its own, to lots of different changing um, characteristics. And it. I even just had the, the thought, like, how much should we do? Or can we do? And I kept coming back to that a lot. So I guess it's like questioning the whole idea of what we can do through conservation. So I, I remember thinking about that a lot as I was reading.
0: Yeah, I um I thought, and I don't think this is in the book, it might be, let me know if I've forgotten it. But I thought a lot about Chernobyl. Um, as I was reading the book, you know, like, the nuclear site, which is now a conservation site, basically, because no one wants to hang out there. But it is full of these these endangered species, basically, they have the, uh, I don't know how to pronounce the wild horse's name. Do you know what I'm talking about? The one that starts with a P, the Prowowskis, wild horses, sure and they say. have like tons of different species of birds that are very unusual. They have tons of different like um, kinds of deer, like stuff like that. And so I thought that was a really interesting example of like, what if you just don't do anything because no humans can go there, you know, like what would happen if we just went extinct? (laughs) Like, what? you know, it might be an interesting scenario, which unfortunately we would not be able to observe. (laughs) (laughs)
4: <laughs> <laughs> I got to this point when they were talking about the um, the place in the Netherlands where they were like really observing this like different waves of species increasing and decreasing and plants increasing and decreasing depending how the species increased and the like the, the herbivores that would eat them, for example, and what kind of bushes would be there and that it was all in a way in balance over time and then I was thinking about humans they are just increasing there is no decrease until there is going to be a fatal decrease and that kind of was a bit like (laughs) it's like this uh, climate depression you get in the middle of summer while reading through this book so of course that is it's so clear that nature is regulating itself but are we part of nature? And she asked that question as well. Often we look at nature as something separated from ourselves, but we are part of it. But in a way, we are different than all other species because we are not in going in waves. Because when there, come, there comes a pandemic, yeah, many people die, but we find a solution for that to limit the impact on us. And that is what I was thinking about as well about humans in this context, and um, she doesn't go into that in detail, but it is in there and it's also in there that humans have made a big impact on the composition of ecosystems already 30,000 years ago, when they invented the, the spears that they could hunt uh, large megafauna with and within (laughs) not much time all these large animals disappeared which was the first real change to to environments and i have never seen this Aspect in such a time frame. We you think about Columbus arriving to some place, and that is where we should like reset it to. But you never really go thirteen thousand years back and think like, oh, mm-hmm. that is a
1: reset long yeah, time. Yeah, I three <laughs> Yeah, also like I want to have
3: ground sloths again. Like I looked them up, and they're like, like massive creatures. And Terrifying.
1: I, like,
2: <laughs> <laughs> I really enjoyed that part of the book. It was early in the book where it was talking about baselines and the idea that. A lot of colonialist, colonialist views are to set the baseline to when Europeans first came to North America. But it talked a lot about the like, indigenous knowledge and the ways that they worked the land or changed the environment around them that I was really fascinated by. And I didn't know a lot about that before. So it was just really eye opening. And that's something I'd like to learn more about. But like an example I just uh, looked at as I was refreshing myself on this book was that the tribes would burn Manhattan every fall just and that's like a way of fire management of the landscape that they were doing long before any European contact so there and there's tons of different examples of environmental management like that that we like colonialist settler views kind of forget or don't acknowledge
3: I would like to come back to the this uh, climate change uh, idea because there's like two things that I or like one about the climate change um, the book is from 2012 so the the, vo- the world was different back then in terms like I mean climate change was already happening scientists were already very much warning about it but we didn't see like the the drastic changes that or the, the weather extremes that we've seen in the last couple of years so I Like, reading this book, um, I sometimes wonder like, yeah, this doesn't sound like as extreme as it feels right now. Um, And then I looked at the time and it was, oh, yeah, this is like 10 years ago. Um, It was it was still different back then. And so that's something I think is important to know. And I would like to have an updated version of this, like how like with the more extreme effects of the climate crisis. Does that change the, the the behavior in conservation biology?
1: At the back, she also mentions like the idea of you know setting up these kind of rambunctious gardens yourself and doing what like Ellen's doing with the community gardening, and she says there's not really any sort of official resources to help with you know it's all on the internet but actually that is happening now like there's a lot of um, countries and states where they have specialized programs where they even give like government funding if you switch out your lawn for natives and they show you which plants to grow and they show you how to combine things for getting like the optimal like services that you want and also the best for like bees and birds so like yeah definitely things have moved on in that way as well
0: yeah this book is super prescient for being written in 2012 but yeah definitely
2: written in
3: 2012 <laughs> yeah yeah especially with like some of the policies that i mentioned other than like from 2009 or something you know like there have been updates since then um but they can't be reflected in the book so that's something um that yeah that, that you can't blame the book at all for that but i just wish it would have been like more up to date in some magical way uh and the other thing is um, like coming back to what you said you did about the like, the humans and how they behave, like, as part of nature or should, like, the, the waves that they come in. And there's one, th- I think, two or three times there's, men- there's mention of the idea in conservation biology of uh, stopping um, population growth in humans. And I'm always, like, that's something that, that, that triggers me where I'm, like, this often leads to very bad ideas because it's very hard to do this in an ethical way. There's like some ways the way you can sort of through economic growth give very like soft incentives to change the way family planning works. But if you... Want to do this as a sort of conservation biology approach uh, of reducing human population growth? There's not many ethical ways to do that, and that is like men- not mentioned at all. But this was really like the smallest n- thing I could find where I disagreed with something in the book. I just remember that like ha- put like a little marker on like two p- spots where I read that. So what, uh,
1: one of those examples was like Nash's cities, right? It's The idea of like humans voluntarily—I think it's Nash—humans voluntarily going into these huge cities. And then choosing, and I, I, they did say voluntarily limiting their own population and living in these cities so that the rest of the world could basically be reserves. That's That mm-hmm. was one of the, the concepts of yeah human growth yeah but i think
3: it was also in the end like in the last chapter um she discusses um the the different goals that you can have for conservation biology um and they Mm -hmm. sometimes go against each other and in one of the the sub goals there there was also mentioned that some conservation biologists call for a reduction in human population growth and that's pretty much the entire sentence there and like that could mean a lot of things and that's why i'm saying like this is a very very minor criticism but this was something that like where I immediately felt like, like, how, how should we do this? Like, how uh, propose an ethical way to control the well, human she population? Could have, I
1: mean, we, we do know. We have like, arguably, we can say, we know that if women are given the options to make reproductive choices for themselves, this does lead to less children, generally speaking. So I think you can say, she didn't add that explicitly. I don't yeah. think it has to be eugenics, Joram, but I understand why that's something that like, goes against your personal <laughs> concerns. Yeah. The
0: birth control in the
1: water. <laughs> <laughs> yeah Joran went to a dark place very fast but like yeah, access to birth control by people who want it I think is already yeah. or like education about safe sex is already like
3: I mean there's also studies showing that if the general quality of, of life increases in, in societies that then, then sort of automatically the number of children per family goes down because um, the priorities change and you don't have to worry so much anymore that uh, uh, who of your children will make it and therefore you reduce like sort of automatically over just very few generations it reduces the number I think of we're people. like
1: stretching the remit of this book
3: though now we're a discussion
1: about I'm moral choices
3: I, I'm, I'm weakening my own my own point here but just like just we saying like, point, this, yeah the, the only little negative thing I could find and it that speaks a lot because like that's yeah literally, it's, that's, pretty it's small. a stretch it's a stretch to make that case and that's the only thing I could note down
1: I I thought of one thing so um you were just talking about this baseline thing and going like back to you know 50,000 years ago um with well, this first rally out 50,000 years ago I liked that when they had all these scientists who were really into setting baselines they were all setting baselines that like prioritized their goal right like the date was based on when their species reigned supreme <laughs> and I think this is like I understand that baselines are definitely a problem but like this is one of the reason we have baselines that like are set because otherwise it's like oh yeah like t-rexes were really big <laughs> in the what is that quotations <laughs> that's that's going to be my baseline or like i really like ferns let's go back to like the jurassic or whatever <laughs> I, I don't know when my time periods but you know you notice that person who had the tree she's like oh yeah i'm choosing before the glaciations drove those trees into the small like refuges that's int- that's like, sure, you really like that species and you want it to be everywhere, but that's very convenience that like, that is the time point <laughs> where you've chosen. Yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah, I think this book does a good job of being like, things change, you know, mm-hmm. and there's a certain amount of emotion that we feel as humans having caused this extinction crisis, obviously, but also... It's happening, you know, like if we were narrating this as a geologist narrated changing of rock formations completely neutrally, you know, I feel like it would be a lot easier to deal with for
2: everyone.
4: (laughs) I think she did a good job making the reader feel in this. um, What's the English word for? Lombard du choix is the French word, like when you 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 need to choose something, but you don't know what is good to choose. <laughs> like when she's talking about uh, there's an animal, I I don't remember. It was a to me unknown English word in the book, a squirrel maybe that was going one north and nose up to a mountain. And when she asks, what happens when it's now? It's like it's too warm on the top of the mountain. Oh, it's Should the pika, t- the American pika. The pika, yeah. What's that? What's that animal? Small mouse, like Pikachu. <laughs> a mouse, yeah. Not a squirrel. It's a mouse. <laughs> so should we meet, meet, uh, move Pikachu to the next mountain or, or not? That you don't know. You don't know what is happening. So it's really, it really puts the reader into this. Like, what would you do? It doesn't ask that question, but indirectly, well, would... it 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 it. Puts yourself into this question, or these, uh, what are the, the trees in Florida there, where activists moved <coughs> them and scientists moved very few, very specifically to, uh, to locations and then activists came and they moved plenty of trees because they wanted to protect them. And then she takes up the question like, what well, should the government decide, who should actually decide what is moved? Is it, so it's, it's all this like, what should we decide, who should decide, who should give the order of doing it or of not doing it? So there's a lot of questions around that where it's not certain what would be right to do, even as an individual. It's like like Ellen planted her garden. You tried with native plants first, and now you have non-native plants. Is that the right way to do? Well, you have something that's growing there, but it can leave (laughs) you in a lot of questions when when you are living in a place where these things are right now happening, where you have to make a decision. And it's not an easy decision.
2: Yeah. And I think it showed that each decision had a different set of impacts or consequences part part of which we could maybe know and predict and a lot that we can't
4: exactly the the thing that we can't know what will happen because we don't know what the species that we move will cause in the place where it is moved to under a changing climate in addition
1: so that's also the thing about like the general conservation issue right that the the climate crisis and also i mean all the other issues like human habitat human defined habitat loss and all this stuff has created like a trolley problem where like conservationists feel more comfortable doing nothing because that feels like at least if you you haven't caused the death actively by doing the thing but there's not really like the, tra- the trolley is still going and it's going to run people over it's going to like these there's climate warming there's habitat destruction these species will still die if you do nothing it's just that you can then say my hands are, are less dirty as it were as an individual so this is kind of one of the the big conundrums of of conservation biology right now, I guess. It has definitely, the book has definitely changed my view on conservation
4: biology and everything that is part of it. It's not just restoring things to a baseline. (laughs) So, which was really interesting. I, not being, not being from that field, um, has made me think also about my own research and about what should we decide there, and how should we manage forests, for example? Should we go back yeah. to what it was before, or should we try to improve what it is now?
3: Yeah, I think it, it, it also it changed it for me to, very much in favor of these designer ecosystems. This these approaches where in land that we already have that's really not at all like it used to be that we try to make like a working ecosystem there with whatever tools we have independent of if it's historically the the thing that used to be there like in in germany for example so many of the the wetlands have been dried completely so even if you decide that it would be the best thing to go back a thousand years it's technically just really really hard to tell the people living there that they will live in a swamp now um because that's (laughs) the baseline that we decided to choose so instead just taking the land that is there and making like a functional beneficial ecosystem there that it's diverse in species is something that before i would have been like yeah just like tough luck for the people there um swamp it is and i mean i'm saying that like in, in, in berlin it was like very very swampy in <laughs> germany like 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 Brandenburg, like the area, the, the area around berlin used to be very very swampy and i think it's it was like, very swampy like 400 years ago or something there were like massive endeavors taken to to dry out the land and now it's just like very sandy like it's less wet but it's can
1: it still smells swampy somehow
3: yeah it's still not great (laughs) but at least it's not a swamp anymore and um so yeah now i'm more in favor of making the best of what we have instead of just trying very hard to to find whatever like ancient um land use that, that there was and then restoring that
1: I guess that's fine. But if somebody says, hey, there's like this species of frog that like was in the swamp 400 years ago or however many years ago, and now it's like in this tiny little pocket and its only chance of survival long term is if we widen that pocket how much money are you putting into that widening that pocket and how many people are you moving so that this entire species of frog doesn't die out and does that change then if that frog it doesn't have any cousins doesn't have any other species it's like the only thing in its genus or the only thing in its family which is part of the argument at the end of the book Mm -hmm. and i think yeah it's fine to say we make do with what we we have but like there are other considerations which muddy the water into a muddy muddy swamp yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm yeah. pro swamp personally, like
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs>
3: Yeah, but yeah, that's I think it's also in the end um the, she presents one opinion that's like quite utilitarian where they are weighing different like just the the number of species preserved by different tactics and mm. Like, I would I would say goodbye to that frog if it means we can protect, like, 10 other species or, like, just give them a more stable footing to to have a better chance of survival. I, th-
1: I think you say that, but, like, realistically, we know people don't do that. So, this is, like, yeah. this has been a thing that's going on for years. And I think we've talked about this before, this idea of, like, global biodiversity hotspots. Like, conservation money is limited. Like, years and years ago, people said, how do we spend the least money? Or, like, what's the smallest packages of land to save the most plant and animal species? And we can work out where they are. As it turns out, most of them are not in our countries because as the book makes really clear, like Europe and North America were basically cleared out. And there's not many native species that are very highly endemic. We need to put all those money in a lot of like small island nations and like lots around like Indonesia, Southeast Asia kind of area. But as it turns out, we know that people don't like donating money outside of their home. They want to see like the frog who is like the symbol of Berlin survive, <laughs> and that's what they'll do at the cost of like 30 other species or like 100 other species in Sulawesi or something. Yeah, like
3: I mean, that's what we're doing here in Berlin as well. For example, with the zoo with like the massive panda breeding project that that's going on here in Berlin. And I would also make the case that maybe like all of that money and effort there <laughs>
1: Yeah, pandas in the freezer straight away. (laughs) So one of her arguments at the end, when she was talking about different ways of thinking about saving, one of the arguments is sort of phylogeny. So the idea that you want to save as much genetic diversity as you can. So you look at these organisms that don't have any close relatives and these have to be prioritized because if you lose those species, you lose like millions of years of evolutionary history. And I'm very pro this. like, I, I really like this way of thinking about species survival. But she does then say... I guess that means we would just put a whole lot of samples in the freezer and then we've got the, the DNA and we're fine. And I don't I don't think that conservationists who believe in that really believe in the freezer method, but like for the pandas, they can go in the freezer. Like,
3: <laughs> 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 just yeah. put the
0: whole bears in the,
1: yeah. in
3: the freezer. <laughs> seriously, it would probably be cheaper than all of the conservation efforts that are being done right now, <laughs> trying Actually, to like convince to- them life. to mate.
1: I think pandas are useless animals but I have so much respect for them that they've like literally created like one of the most powerful countries in the world like owns all like has invested so much energy into pandas like the, the pandas have basically trapped an entire nation into believing that they are great and it's a really powerful nation it's not like some crappy nation it's freaking China like that's that's an impressive organism surely <laughs> It's
0: like some sort of it's coercive like ability I don't know. We've read several books where it's like the plants have trapped
1: us. Yeah, the intelligence. That's like for real. <laughs> exactly, the coercive ability of the panda alone makes it worthwhile, like, to be conserved. <laughs> <laughs> this is how I'm going to rank my species for conservation. <laughs> <laughs>
4: It's interesting how how our own perspective on that conservation, like what we favor, makes an impact. And the same is, I think he, she is uh, talking with a guy who is working, who is living in, is he living in, uh, I don't know, in Finland? I don't even remember where, but he has been planting his garden with some kind of weeds and created biodiversity and she says it's, it's not as nice as his neighbor's well-tended garden. So it's our own standards that influence this as well. Even if we know... What we should do. It's also about accepting that things will look differently. It's the same about buying apples that don't look perfect in the supermarket, but we tend to want to conserve the megafauna or the, 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 yeah, the bigger animals that we actually recognize that are cute, the elephants and who cares about one fungus in the soil who doesn't really show? <laughs> and the same is like our aesthetics for our own gardens. We want it to look nice, even though we may know that it's not the best this way for, for conservation purpose. So it's an interesting aspect to think about how humans resonate and influence their decisions based on their own preferences.
0: Yeah, I have a lot of thoughts about lawns, but in terms of like killing yeah. fungi, like there's so many different, like I read this book about the history of lawns and they, they've they just been pouring basically mercury and like every kind of mercury variation mixed with other terrible heavy metals into American lawns to kill f- fungi and weeds, you know, and it's just like we know so little about soil biodiversity, like, what have mm. we killed? We'll never know, you know, like, it's just mind blowing to think about that. All the mercury we've poured into our yards.
4: Mm. The part that I also liked was uh, in the designer ecosystem um, the where she is visiting uh, an industrial zone. And she's talking about all the small areas that have been improved. In this, uh, in this rather ugly place and how biodiversity can be created in these places where you wouldn't even expect that they are of any value for, for nature conservation. So that was a very hopeful part because as also Ellen mentioned with um, uh, Chernobyl, there's so, so much biodiversity there because it's untouched nature basically now and these organisms can thrive there. And that was a nice... I like the the idea of that chapter, how she saw potential in these areas as well. And I think there's many areas around the world that have the potential to become a better um, ecosystem, even though they are not an optimal place, even though they may be just the grass that is growing in the middle between two lanes on a highway. So even there is potential.
3: Should we go on to the to the ratings or is there something that we that we forgot to mention
2: we could maybe talk about who we think the book is for uh, We've yeah, that's a good idea. oh yeah done that before. oh yeah yeah i
0: mean uh i think it's a great popular science book in terms of i think it's very approachable Emma Morris is great at adding interesting details without overwhelming anybody. Um, I think it makes a lot of sense from like an idea perspective, like it's pretty easy to connect the examples to the ideas and it's cohesive, you know, Um, yeah, I think pretty much, I mean, obviously not like a child probably, but I don't know, maybe kids would like this book. I think it's pretty accessible
1: for most people. I think it's really clear that she's come from sort of the writing perspective into an academic topic as opposed to the other Mm -hmm. way around. And I'm Mm. saying that completely as a pro, not as a con. Like, I think it actually, the science is is good and the discussions are very well balanced. But her writing is also just superb, which is something we've lacked in some of our other books in the past, to be honest. Mm. So, yeah, I think that just makes it really readable for a lot of people. I agree. I found it a really... um
2: not easy read, but it it read it read easily for me, I guess it was written in a way that was easy to follow, I knew it was scientifically accurate without getting too in in depth into deep topics that would be difficult for a non scientist to understand. Um, and it, lots of different examples to illustrate her points made it really accessible to people who maybe don't know so much about this topic to start with
3: i sometimes had to 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 pose not because it was like too hard to read but so dense in information to sort of process it and sort of answer some of these questions that we've mentioned before like <laughs> um yeah just like needing some time to di- digest it um while reading it from time to time so i couldn't like read it like start to finish in in one go but i still wanted to con like i kept wanting to p- to pick it up and continue reading so it was not at all deterring it was more like to really get something out of it you need to let it like digest for a little bit and then continue but yeah i would say anyone who has some interest in nature or conservation should read this um be it for their own garden or be it as a bigger political idea, uh, I think this this is really something for many, many people.
4: Mm. Yeah, and it's quite slim. Mm. It's mm. like
3: 100, 170 pages.
4: Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I agree with you, uh, Joram, that it was very, it, it made me curious. I wanted to continue reading and to find out what there was more. And I liked her personal edge on this, that every scientist was very was a person it wasn't like a machine producing data it was an individual who had a certain perspective a certain interest and they most of them had their little baby in the way of that they had an ecosystem that they cared about they had a tree that they cared about um, which made it also maybe not always so objective for the scientists and uh, but it it definitely also presented Um, the way scientists and science is working and that behind all these results are people. And I like that idea as well for young people who are wondering how the work of scientists works. And it it definitely um, gives that perspective that scientists are people and they are approachable people because they took her out on all these places and were happy to share their findings with her. So I, I like that part of the book as well.
0: All right, you want to go to our ratings?
4: I give it five Pikachu's that needs to be moved to the next <laughs> northern mountaintop because I really found it well-written interesting and it had a lot of food for thought for me.
3: Uh, yeah, I also give it five out of five conflicting conservation goals because that's really, <laughs> like, as I said before, Like I, I, I don't know how this book could be better, so I think it's an absolute, like, it deserves all the points.
2: I was going to be a slight downer and say 4.5 uh, invasive <laughs> plants out of 5 just because there, there are – just in comparison, there are other books that we have read that I, that I liked better in comparison, but still I have no major critiques and I really enjoyed the book.
0: Yeah, I think I'm gonna go five out of five. Uh, Torpedo Navalis shipworms that have been sailing the seven seas for so long that no one is sure, no one is sure where they originated. Um, I enjoyed it. I, I think she's uh. a good writer.
1: I want to go 4.5 Kudzu, The Weed That Ate the South, out of 5.
0: Oh, um, the Kudzu. That's a huge <laughs> issue. I hate Kudzu. I
1: don't know anything about it, but I highlighted it as something I have to read more about. So yeah, 4.5 out of 5, but mostly because I don't like giving perfect scores. So <laughs> It was really good. It was a really fun book to read.
3: Oh, you'd be such an annoying teacher. Like You, yeah. you, you get all of the points in the exam and you get like a 98%. B plus. (laughs) yeah just like you missed a comma there or i don't like the color of your pen or
1: at least she's self-aware about it i always (laughs) locked down on penmanship keep that in mind yeah
3: i mean that all of you have seen tegan's handwriting but it's it's
1: it's beautiful i think we all agree yeah yeah. (laughs) so what are we reading next
3: uh, I found a book, and I think it sort of ties into some of the ideas in, in this book, which is the leaving something alone and looking what what's going on. I found a book by Dave Goulson when I was in France, and uh, his story was that he like he bought a a piece of land in the south of France and he just let it be and then observed what was happening. Um, And because I couldn't really find that French book in an English translation, I found the next best thing from Dave Golson and that's The Garden Jungle or Gardening to Save the Planet. And this also talks about the, the hidden jungles in a lawn in a in a sort of unkept environment uh, in gardens and parks and areas that we think we know but actually have a lot of like hidden life in them and it might be a little bit more insect heavy from a little blurb that i've read or like uh like non-plants but i like the the cover is full of plants so i hope there will be mention of plenty of plants to justify this book being in this plant book club
4: yeah i mean we love bees yeah why not
3: (laughs) Judith, where can people reach you?
4: People can find me and also Melissa at uh, flora-l.com or at, on Instagram at flora.l.design
1: or same on, on Facebook. Joram and I are on com or on Facebook and Instagram at plantsandpuppets or Twitter.
3: That's- I haven't
0: been on social media very much lately, so I guess you can reach me at the Green Garden by the Fort Green Park uh, <laughs> in Brooklyn. <Hi. laughs> Walk by there. It's by Cafe Paulette. Uh, and my Twitter is at Ellen Earhart. My Instagram is at Ellen Airplants. And I am trying to get back more on social media for the fall
3: i mean i think it's it's a good plan to be more in a garden than on twitter really yeah you
0: can find me in <laughs> <Yeah>. nature <laughs> yeah, so. you can find me. the community gardens open when i'm there like
3: yeah i think that was uh that's it thank you all for listening and goodbye until next time
2: bye bye, bye.
3: The opening and closing music is from the album Green Ideas from Pine Vogue. You can find the music on Bandcamp, where it is published under a Creative Commons License 3.0.